and welcome to the third 50 episode nine uh getting better at getting better how you doing Wayne? And they, they said we'd never last you know they said that <laughs> it's been a big week my friend i uh australian national championships are on last week we've got an interesting model this year that it's Australian championships and then world champ trials are a separate meet. Yeah, look, it was fascinating. There was some good swimming. There was a bunch of girls in the 200 women's final went 155s. And I mean, that was a, that was a great race. I sat there and I went, wow, that uh, if there was a four by 200 freestyle relay on in the world somewhere tonight, the world record would have been under significant pressure. But it yeah. was fascinating that that a lot of the good swimmers just weren't there because they're all swimming through because of the structure. Most of them were swimming untapered. I know that a couple of the senior coaches and I were talking in the, around the warm-up pool, and a lot of them had done full workouts morning and night all the way through the meet. So, yeah, look, it wasn't a great representation of what's there. But as always, great to catch up with old friends. There's nothing like walk, seeing someone on deck and walking up, giving them a bit of a hug, you know, coach, obviously, that you haven't seen for 10 years and, and having a few laughs about the sport and, what's going on and how athletes are. It's, it's, it's great talk. I love it. It's fantastic. So the big question that I have is how was the VIP suite? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think Swimming Australia or Swim Oz, as they're now known, I don't think they'd be watching too much of our podcast, but I can't say it was great. I can't say it was great that it wasn't all I'd, I, I, I thought it was going to be like, uh, you know, ascending a golden staircase and being handed Dom Perignon and and the finest caviar it probably didn't meet those expectations. But, you know, the, the best thing about going to a VIP, I think, at, at Nationals, and I don't get the chance very often, is you'll go, boom, there's Dawn Fraser. So one of our mm-hmm. greats who won three Olympic gold medals for 100 free, yeah. 50s yeah. and 60s. You know, the, there's people there who've shaped the sport and you you only see once a year if you're lucky. So it's that, that's the best thing about VIP. But no, I, I snuck out as quickly as I could once I saw Shannon Rowlandson and and some of the senior coaches doing what they do. Because that, that's what it's about, isn't it? I, I, I seriously don't yeah. tell anyone. I often go to meets and I don't watch the meet at all. I don't <laughs> I, I watch it on video later because right. where it's happening is out the back in the warm-up pool and – listening to coaches engage with athletes, looking at the feedback, looking at the way they're getting athletes ready to perform. For me, that's that's where the real energy is. That's where I learn as well as being – that's, to me, that's the, the battle zone and where the lessons are, are very important. Watching it on – watching it live, good for the fans, but I, I just love to be around the coaches. Yeah, I, I try to encourage all my swimmers that if they have uh, if they get to a big meet to really pay attention to warm up and to really watch how the athletes prepare themselves. Uh, I had a young girl, a uh, young uh, swimmer last week that had to swim five races in one day. They had two, two sessions. And so and the last race, I think, was a 200 fly. And I asked her uh, one of the races was 100 free. And I said, what's your warm down after the 100 free? And she said, well, I'll do 200. And I said, oh, my gosh. And so we went through. We spent we spent quite a bit of time talking about how to prepare for five races in one day, how to, you know, and she's a, a young swimmer and really working on uh, getting the idea across that the, the warm down becomes this incredibly important thing, especially after the fifth race, because there was another another day 
uh, after that. And so you come in sore because you haven't warmed down properly enough. Um, and so it's, um, you know, it, it, I want them to pay attention to that stuff, but I want them to know why they do it. Not just, oh, I'm supposed to go there. And we will actually will talk about that later uh, in today's podcast. No, so that's, um, that, that's a great lead into what we're talking about. I think that, you know, for a long time, we used to do with the national team would do swim down, which was basically get in, swim a few hundred meters. We'd have someone like the great Professor David Pine, who I hope to have on the show in the next series, would do heart rate and lactate management through swim down to see where we're at. But it was basically long, slow swimming. And Gennady mm-hmm. Turetsky came out and they were doing intervals in swim down from a reasonably high intensity and progressively backing off. And, yeah. you know, talking about coaches doing something different, I've mentioned his name many times, but that was a revelation to us because we were basically just get in and swim until you feel better. And they were starting off their intervals in swim down up around 85% and progressively backing off. And, and he had a whole range of research that he shared with us and it was mind blowing. But the initial thing was, ah, no, you wouldn't do intervals and swim down. You just get it. And it was, it was earth shattering to have someone come up with something different. That could be a topic for another show. I think yeah. be just getting ready. And uh, so uh, warming up, warming down would be a very, very interesting topic for a show. Yeah. I, I love ascending sets at the end of practice. Yeah. Uh, where you just keep going slower and slower and, you know, you get out of a race, you hit something pretty hard. You know, it's always, everybody always says, especially after a great race, that felt so easy. I could do it again right now. Yeah. Mm, probably not. Yeah. But if you go in, you know, if you go into the pool and you hit that and then start to back off it, it just feels so good. So that's, that's very cool that, um, that he did that. I think one of the things, um, so the, the full titles teaching the same thing gets the same way uh, day after day after day. And then how can coaches get better at coaching and then getting better at getting better, uh, challenging assumptions. And so one of the things that, that you had written that I absolutely love is, um, you know, a lot of coaches will talk about how much experience they have, how long they've been coaching. And, um, you know, but what have you changed in that time? What have you what have you grown to? Um, you know, I do a Zoom meeting every week on Tuesday for Go Swim. And I will go back and I'll look at videos that I made 20 years ago that might be included in, in the podcast or the, the Zoom meeting. And I'll look at it and I'll say, why would I have taught that? Why didn't I correct this? Why didn't I? And so I see things totally differently than I did 20 years ago. Um, and so I loved how you said this. You have 20 years of experience or you have one year of experience 20 times. <laughs> And that's one of my most frequent comments when someone's in the backyard at the pool is one of my favorite quotes is by Bruce Lee when he says, I don't fear the man that's practiced 10,000 kicks. I fear the man that's practiced one kick 10,000 times. And I try to get the point across to the athletes that every stroke is going to be different. It's going to be unique. And what you have to do is focus intently on that action and how you're going about that action. And so giving an importance of, of the individual stroke uh, you know, we want to break it down that far just to get the point across that don't think that you're going to get better through simply the the accumulation of strokes. It's not going to happen. There's There's got to be purpose to it. Um, so over to you on that one. Yeah, it's 
I think we are, we're creatures of habit that, you know, we get up roughly at the same time every day, unless we've got young kids, but we get up every day, roughly the same time. <laughs> we get dressed more or less at the same time. We shower, we shave, if, you know, with this, usually starting on the same side all the time. We make our coffee the same way in our favorite cup. There's so much of what we do is ritual and routine. And it's very easy to, to say, well, that's my life for that, that, but in terms of performance, which is we're all about how do we help kids swim faster? Help we how do we help athletes go faster? That it's it's not a world of routine and ritual. And and the most dangerous words in our business are that's the way I do it here. That's that's the way mm. I have always done it. That's the yeah. way we do it. Every year before nationals, four days out, we have the Wednesday off. Every year before nationals for the last 20 years. I do a set of descending breaststroke. Well, great. In that time, the the way kids learn has changed. What we know is about sports science, sports medicine, nutrition, recovery, sleep, all those things have changed. There's so many things that have evolved. And it sounds wonderful to say, yep, this is the way we always do it in our club and we've done it for 25 years. Well, chances are your results are probably not where they could be. And uh, I mean, yeah. Doc, there's a great line from Doc, and I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something like habit, tradition, and routine are insidious, you know, and they're the yeah. real enemies of performance. And someone I'm sure can send in the exact quote from Councilman. But I mean, he was recognizing even in the 60s that the thing that yeah. that stops performance is being overly, overly married, if you like, to the way you've always done things. And it's it's about learning and about getting better. Well, it's not only that, it's that, you know, the way everything, the, the whole world has changed and it changes every day. And, um, you know, it's like a breaststroke turn, um, the elbow, the robber and call the cops, elbow, the brother, call them. I was doing those turns in 1978. And so I see this still being put out there as uh, the teaching methodology you know, and I don't agree with it anymore. I don't, I don't teach it that way. I, I teach a much lower spinning sort of turn. I've filmed a bunch of people doing it the old way and the new way. And there's, there's no difference in speed. Okay. This is the thing that I want people to understand. There's no difference in speed going straight over or going around. The difference is you're ready to perform when you come off a little bit flatter, you know, unless you're doing a side dolphin kick, maybe for fly or something like that. But it's once you engage the wall, it almost doesn't matter what you do because the wall has so much power in it that whether it's a flat wall and you're pushing or a guttered wall in the United States that you're grabbing, that gives you so much power. And it's like, why haven't people changed how they teach? Because it, you know, we're just doing it the same way. And that's just one example of something. Um, it it kind of drives me a little crazy when I see people, teaching that way because it, 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 it to, to me it speaks that i i have not progressed now what else haven't you progressed in that, that's yes. my question that's a, it's a good call and look with the the way that it, and as you know my real my real passion is coaching coaches and and i go around the world and the model is very much the same is that somebody has written a course typically the people who deliver the course are senior coaches who've got some experience, you rarely get national team coaches, but senior coaches have been around for a while, they've got a bit of experience. 
Now the pros and cons, you know, everything's got two sides that that or three sides, but every everything's got a couple of sides. They come in and they go, I'm going to teach you breaststroke. Now, the way that I do it is, now the upside is practical experience. They've learned through trial and error. They can share a whole bunch of stories. But my experience is also the downside to that is that those coaches were taught by swimming coaches who were taught by swimming coaches who were taught by swimming coaches. So if you've got someone, you know, like me, 60, who comes in and says, I'm going to talk to you about the way that I do it. Now, unless I'm watching your work, unless I'm keeping up to date with the latest research, unless I'm right there, what I might be sharing with that group of coaches is what I learned in the 1970s and 80s, which was there from the 1950s and 60s. So you can, if you don't stay ahead and don't keep up and stay contemporary, you can go to a course now and effectively be learning things that we've had in place for 40 or 50 years. And I'm not saying that everything we've always done is wrong. That's That certainly is not the case. But things have changed and have got smarter and better. The technology's improved. There's so many things there. And yet it, I, I, I'm with you. I'll go to pools and I go, man, are you, you know, never, never say it out loud. But I look and go, right. man, are we still teaching that? I can't believe it. I really, yeah. it's stunning that we're still talking about, you know, lactate levels for nine-year-olds. And there's so many things that that have changed and have moved on. And I see coaches just doing the same thing over and over again. I'm wondering why it's not making the impact maybe it was when they started out. Yeah, and it, and it's how you communicate with people as well. It's how you, how you go about it because, again – one of the things that you wrote is that kids are learning faster and they learn differently. I mean, this is, we're in a really crazy time right now. Uh, obviously with some of the tech work that I do, I'm very much into um, um, reading about AI and how it's changing everything and how it's happening so fast. I heard a podcast um, actually this morning uh, where the gentleman talked about, generally there's huge knowledge shifts or uh, social shifts uh, once a generation, and it could be like the invention of the car or the invention of the telephone and things like that. He says, we're currently going through probably five major shifts in the advancement of how things work in one generation. And that's because of the acceleration of, of information and the acceleration of AI. Now, when we look at kids, I look at my daughter, Maddie, who's nine years old, what is she going to experience and how does she, how do I present something to her that engages her enough? And we, we do as much as possible to keep her off screens. She has her screens on the weekends, but that's it. Um, uh, because I know how engaging they can be. Um, you know, so how do we communicate with kids knowing that they've changed how they communicate? And if we haven't changed, then it's, it's not going to be effective. Yeah, true. And it's, look, I think the AI, I mean, there's a debate, a discussion for another day's technology and swimming, isn't it? There's another yeah. show, as we say, but, but I, I think, and I know I was on a panel once about genetics in sport and there was some great research being presented about how it's going to change coaching and it'll change talent ID. It'll change our perceptions of athlete development. And I said, but in the end guys, still, it's going to be, does the athlete want to do it? Are mm -hmm. they engaged with it? Do they enjoy doing it? 
Are they passionate about it? When things get tough, are they resilient so that they continue to do it when things get difficult? I've got no doubt sooner or later, and maybe it's already out there, hopefully we're not giving away another million dollar idea, but someone's probably <laughs> doing AI swim workouts. And I'm sure you could do it quite easily. I'm sure if we I've got on one of those sites and go, uh, write me a yeah. freestyle workout, I bet you you could do great stuff. It, it does it, Wayne. It does it, and it does it pretty effectively. I've, tr- yeah, I've well, tested it. And so it's, so here's the thing. And, and I've been thinking a lot about this, obviously, for you know, from a business standpoint and, and the human standpoint, um, you know, it's always been said that, and this is why kind of what we're talking about today is that you can't do the same thing all the time because the world is going to pass you by. Yes. And you can go on chat GPT and say, I want, you know, I, I swim about a one thirty hundred yard pace for freestyle. I've got 45 minutes to, uh, to swim. Can you write me a workout? And you know what? It takes 15, not even it's just five seconds and it's done. And then if you don't like it, you say, Can you, I don't like it. Make me another one. So the question is, from that standpoint, if you don't, if you, if you feel that, um, you know, the, the way you communicate, the way you write things and the way that uh, you've done it the same way you always have. It's not going to be that way. And the yes. magic is not the magic is not into what's written on the page and what you're asking the athletes to do. It's exactly what you said, and it's exactly why I look at this stuff. It comes down to how you draw out of that athlete what they what they do within that set, what they do within that workout it has nothing to do. I mean, it does have something to do with what's written on the paper, absolutely. But these systems are going to get better at it. You want you want the perfect physiology in the workout? It'll write it. It'll write it. Um, you know, do the color codes? It'll know it soon. Okay. So you have to be engaging, and you have to be the one delivering this in such a way that the people that are under you, the kids, the master swimmers, the triathletes, whoever is there, you engage them to give what they need to give in order to get what they need to get out of it. And if it's yeah, just man. handing a piece of paper to somebody, then then you are done as a coach. But uh, and look, I it's something I've I've said for a long time, and people raise eyebrows. But I've said, guys, to be honest, the design of the workout doesn't matter as much as you might think. It's we 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 overly focus on what's in the workout because it's quantifiable. I can go, yep, we did six hundred a breaststroke kick today, and I did. 1400 in my main set and we did 620s in our speed work but you and I know that it's the art of coaching so you know all of those technological advancements we've had have have given us we can do things faster more efficiently but still the way we use that technology has always been based on human factors you know you get someone a car well then it's a management exercise of how do you drive it how well do you drive it how fast do you drive it how, how do you look after it? It's still that blend of art and science, no matter what. Look, 10 years from now, who knows? There might be, you might have an earpiece in and there might be an AI coach saying, Glenn, keep it long and smooth. Keep your body stretched out so they're going to do the workout. But in the meantime, it's still coaching as a business of relationships. And uh, but oh, look, there, there'd be a lot of businesses in swimming who'd be freaking out right now, my friend, who've made a lot of money selling workouts. And they're yeah. going to either have to 
look to, I don't know, get into real estate or something, or they're going to have to now figure out a way of what's their advantage, what's their unique opportunity in business. Because if it's not selling workouts anymore, uh, then what else is there? Well, what else is there is quality coaching. And that's still going to be the determining factor. The great thing about athletics, even in the days of technology, is that the human still has to do it. Yes. And so, you know, whether you're the coach or the athlete, until we get to the point, who knows when, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's coming back and he's going to be half human, half robot, and he's going to do a 50 free and 8 2. Um, Has you he know, done that so already? I'm pretty sure, but, you know, Wasn't that I real? think he had, we had a tech suit on, so it didn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, a tech suit. I mean, the, the entire thing was tech. But, um, you know, we still come down to the human has to do it. So our job is really getting into what we're talking about, which is um, creativity in coaching, which is how do you engage people in these, you know, and again, I don't want to take away from the set design and how much time someone puts into writing a great practice, but that great practice writing comes in right there as well. It's not just, if it was just about distance, it was just about that, then it would be easy to write the practices. How do you write a practice that is engaging the athletes in such a way to give what they, what you need them to give or what they need themselves to give? Well, it's, this literally goes back 20 years. Dave Denniston wrote an article for our website um, uh, called Mona Lisa Practices. And what he meant by that was that if it's boring to write, it's boring. It's more boring to yeah. do. Right. And so every practice had to be unique. And he, yeah. So, I mean, that was so long ago. And so when he, you know, he's looking at the page when he's writing his workout and he's thinking to himself, how would I enjoy this as an athlete? And if it's not, then he doesn't write it. Yeah, true. And I say to coaches, instead of just criticizing your kids about being on social media all the time and being on their device, because you're not going to change it. It's that's gone. The, the, yeah. the, a 14 year old from the rest of their life is going to be connected to the web, the net, everything else. They're going to yeah. be on their devices, whatever form that the world's changed. Just you, you, that's the way it is that, but just stop for a minute and look at the way they engage with what they're engaging with. They don't go back to the same thing twice. They barely, yeah. you, you send them a 30 second video. They barely get through it before they go, Hey, that's really good. I'm sure with my friends. They, it's yeah. constant. So now put yourself in their position. They walk in and coaches there in the morning. say, okay, guys, so I, I shouldn't do that accent, but you know, <laughs> I'm just every time I say guys, I want to want to talk like that. But anyway, but they say, all right, guys, um, this morning we're gonna go 400 easy, uh, 200 mixed medley, and then uh, 450s on 130. Your choice. The kids are looking, go, man. We almost do this every bloody day. Every, it's very very similar. Now, is the coach doing the right thing physiologically? Probably. I don't know. You could argue, but. The swimmer's going, man, I've done this before. I've done it so – and they're switched off. They're disengaged. Yeah. And once they're disengaged, things like you talk about, focus on stroke, uh, just feel it and flow, but be into the moment, the aspect of mindfulness, that if we've disengaged them from that first, okay, guys, go over there and do our stretching. 
same stretching routine we've done for four or five months, you know, because it's too hard to change it and teach them all over again. They're not engaged. They're not interested. They're not going to do it well. They're not going to do it with a sense of purpose and any sort of deliberate uh, action. And that's the way the workout's going to go. And I, this is where I, I think we're at is, is coaches have got to now be very, very aware that you stay true to what you believe in, but the way you deliver it has got to be consistent with the way kids are learning and the way they're engaging with their universe. If you're doing the same thing the same way over and over, then you're going to lose them. I think it's genius what you said from the standpoint of when you look at social media and you look at how they engage in that, that 30 second, um, you know, slot of life. And then we expect them to come in and do these long sets because we want to get the yardage in and um, you know, it, something doesn't mix there. And, you know, there's, there's, there are programs out there getting their athletes to do those very long sets and to, to get that. But it's, um, you know, you just wonder where it's going to go to. And so keeping your eye on that, I think it's very, very important in, um, in, like you said, just watch what the kids do, just watch them and see how they, um, how they live the rest of their lives. Um, and if we can engage them similarly in training, um, then they're probably going to be really, really into it, which is which is what you want. Um, so I think one of the next things that you had written is, you know, basically building and growing relationships with kids, other coaches, parents. You know, it's not just coach and swimmer. It's it is kind of the community. Yeah, very much so, isn't it? That, that you know, we're, we're surrounded by people who are all exposed to the, to ideas and innovation. And so it, it's, again, we, we, we're all critical of swimming parents, even though most of us are swimming parents at different stages. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, a parent could go on to, to chat, uh, AI or, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, us old guys, we don't understand it. But, um, but they can go on and say, um, tell me about great breaststroke. So they've got information that maybe we were the custodians of in the past and they're right. becoming very discerning and they're becoming very informed and that's their world. They can be, a parent can lie in bed now and go, I'm going to watch um, Dave Solo talk about the development of sprinters. I'm going to talk, listen to Eddie Reese's interview at the World Swimming Coaches Conference about what it takes to be great. So I'm going to, look at uh let's look at bob's work with michael why was michael so extraordinary so parents have got access to the same information that every coach in the world's got there's no secrets there's no they can get anything anytime anywhere and usually for free on their device right so we're dealing with a different group that used to be maybe they were just overly passionate and overly invested in their kids now they're informed as well so again coaches what are we doing that is adding something special, adding something of significance. What what do we do as coaches to actually make a difference? Because the athletes, the committees, the swimmers, the parents, everyone's got access to the same information we've got now. And if the only tool we've got is hard work in the pool, then I think we can do better. You know, I really think that we can do better. And 
you you and I have had the same discussions with people that we absolutely love, some senior coaches, mm-hmm. about aerobic base. And they'll say, oh, you got to get the base into the kids. You know, the kids have got to do the background work. Physiologically, probably true, would never argue with it, all that stuff. But if they hate it and they don't want to come and they're disengaged and their technique is awful and their skills are terrible, but we can say, yeah, but we're building their VO2 max. Yeah, we might have been able to do that in the 1970s and 80s, but it's gone. It's different times. It's a partnership. Yeah. It's it, we're, we're all working together to help the athlete be all they choose to be. When we look at our peers and we look at how we learn, um, you know, how to coach, obviously we got a great college program. You're going to have five, six coaches. I think it's six now uh, or next year it starts like that. But if you have um, basically you got a lot of high level coaches on deck. And so those coaches are generally um, meeting with each other and talking with each other and, and, you know, planning what's going to happen. And, um, you know, I see on the club side of things, I don't know if that's the same sort of um, engagement. It's, it's sometimes it's a little bit more protective because you want to, you want your group to stand out. Um, And so some of the teams that we saw when we went around the country were really tight in how they would build from one group to the next and others wouldn't even talk to each other. And, um, you know, it was, there there was no integration in group to group to group to group. It was, you know, I want my group to be the best, so I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing, Uh, which is very strange as far as I'm concerned, but it does happen out there. But I take this coaching coaches as, um, you know, what you can learn from your peers and, you know, you will generally get more than you give. So if you, if you continue to give, uh, the ideas that you get back are going to be those ones that you never thought of because you kind of get stuck into your own sort of thing. Um, so that's, you know, how I think we can continue to grow and learn. Um, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, well, I, someone was asking me the other day about things that Australia does well and how we've been reasonably competitive with considering we're, you know, one step away from the Antarctic and um, our nation's overrun by snakes and spiders and, and crazy koalas and all those things and, and where we are with such a small population that I said, the one thing that I I think has made a difference is that coaches are relentlessly competitive, but there's many forums where coaches share. And one of the Mm. things that was introduced a long, long time ago is what we call national event camps. Now, this blows the mind of a lot of nations when I say, well, basically a national event camp is the best breaststroke coaches and their swimmers all come together for a week to 10 days for a total focus on breaststroke. And they take turns writing practice for the group that they present to their peers for preview and they discuss it. And then they have a debrief with their peers. Now, that's an intimidating moment for a lot of coaches because they're sharing their secrets, Glenn, you know, their secret Mm -hmm. training set and their secret drill, which doesn't really exist. That, Mm -hmm. But what it did, and and I can't say it was an easy process early on because obviously there's personalities, competitiveness, uh, the economic reality of needing to win. But once it caught on, those forums of the acceleration of learning is incredible. So 
national event boat, uh, breaststroke camp, backstroke camp, sprint medley, middle distance, all those where the best coaches and the best swimmers come together and train, get tested, hang out, have coffees, go for walks, do all that stuff in a camp environment. And that's for, I've sat in so many of those sessions and gone, man, what a learning experience this is. Yeah. The top four breaststroke coaches in the world, uh, in, in Australia, having a, a, a real heated argument about length of sets, duration of sets, speed of set, vo- incredible. And it was a great learning experience for them. And, uh, you know, again, for, for coaches, if, if you can't get along with, the coaches in the next team, which is always pretty much the case. It's a little bit like it's a war. Go and find a basketball coach. Go and find a football coach. Go and find (laughs) a a golf coach and talk coaching. Just talk coaching with a group that's – with someone who's not a political threat to you or a financial threat. You know, go to a a boxing centre and say, hey, I just want to talk. I'm a swimming coach. How do you um, inspire athletes when they're tired? What do you do to prepare athletes for something where they're afraid? There's there's so many coaches who are desperate to learn from other coaches. And it doesn't have to be a swimming coach. But the one way I know you don't learn is standing at the end of the pool doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to get different results. Some really smart guy said something like that once. <laughs> um so I, I think the uh, well, why don't you you go with this one first? I've been I've been jumping too far ahead. Your turn. Well, the the I've got a, a really simple thing I teach coaches about reflection. That honest reflection and being honest with your own performance and what you've learned from the practice yourself is incredibly important. I mean, we all know if you've been in the industry for a while, you learn more from the athletes than you do almost from any other source. And at the end of the practice, I think it's important just to stop. You know, we talked about getting on deck early and taking a breath and getting into the moment. Just as important at the end, as I say to coaches, you know, you get in the car, you close the door and you go, oh, let's just get some Bob Dylan on and sing on the way home. That's what old guys would do. But let's just get, I don't know, a young guy like yourself, Taylor Swift, I don't know. But you look like you look like a Swifty, but um, but you know you sit in the car and you go, oh man, I'm tired. I'm on the way home. Just take thirty seconds and go. You know, did I coach at my best today? You know, was I really on? Did I inspire those kids? To, you know, did I? Second thing, did I make a difference today? You know, yeah, I did. I, I there was Sally, and she was struggling. You know, and I, I at that moment. It was a coachable moment, an opportunity where I made an impact. Yeah, we've got some progress there. It's good. And then the third thing is, what did I learn today from my team and from the experience of coaching that will make me better tomorrow? And I think that's where this thing comes in really handy, you know? Um, How do I go today? Yeah, six out of 10. I could have worked on that pretty good, but I think I did that really well. Um, Did I make a difference? Yeah, well, you know, there was some great stuff we did here, here and there. What did I learn? Uh, number one, I learned this. Number two, and number three, and let's put that into practice tomorrow. Really simple process, yeah. but that that just pause of inner reflection. What did I learn today? The cumulative effect of that is very powerful. If I get in the car, it's opportunity lost to go. 
oh man, let's just get some music on. I'm going to listen to the football on the way home. It's Monday night. And uh, yeah, let's forget about what I just saw. Missed opportunity to learn and progress and get better for the next day. I think that um, there's so much I want to say about this, but I have to credit somebody else. And I know we're going to have her on a podcast soon. So I want to save that. Um, the I think people will generally reflect, review, think about what happened after something bad has happened. Yes. And so it's you, you're really looking at how do I avoid this from happening again? And your model of reviewing and reflecting every day minimizes that chance of that happening in the long term, because you're, you're actually analyzing on the small, uh, very minute basis, um, and which means that you're holding yourself accountable on a daily basis, uh, whereas rather than just being, you know, goodness gracious, I'm so tired, I just want to go take a nap as soon as I get home. Um, I think that's, that's fantastic. So, it, and you gotta be honest with yourself. There's, um, there's, there's good days and bad days, man. Did I see a great, um, interview with Giannis, uh, a basketball player from Greece who plays for the Milwaukee Bucks and the Milwaukee Bucks just got beat four to one and they won the championship. I don't know the last year, or the year before, I'm not a huge basketball fan, but, um, but this guy was asked because they just got kicked out of the playoffs was this season of failure. And it's one of the best responses I've ever heard. Um, you know, he was very calm about it, but you could tell he was very upset. Um, and he just said, basically, Michael Jordan played 15 years. He won six titles for the other nine years failures. You know, it took the Milwaukee Bucks 50 years to win a championship for the other 49 years failures. He said, this is athletics. There are no failures in athletics. There's you try, you, you try, you try. You prepare, you do the training, the preparation, and you hope that the outcome is, is good. And if the outcome isn't the way that you want it to be, it wasn't a failure. I've learned, and okay, we're going to try it uh, again next year. And so um, immediate, um, immediate honesty of that, no, this wasn't a failure. It might have been a failure to you. Maybe you bet on us or something. But the, <laughs> but the reality is that, you know, we had, a, we had a really good season. We just didn't win the last few games. That's all. Which is basically what he said. So um, if you have a chance to, to look for that, uh, it's definitely worth watching him um, you know, um, talk about that. There was a great line from uh, I, the many lessons I learned from Don Talbot with the seven or eight years I worked with him. He said to me once that we, we were doing something and I was getting a bit frustrated. And he said, look, remember that nothing we'll ever do will guarantee success. But our job as coaches and as professionals is to increase the likelihood of success. And I, mm-hmm. it's and one of most, the most brilliant lines from someone who'd been to, I don't know, every Olympic since 1952 that, he said, he said, you know, I've tried everything. He said, I've listened to everybody. I see the science. But in the end, I've come to realize no matter how much talent the athletes got or what we do, we can never guarantee success. But our job is to increase the likelihood of success. And that it, it really it reframed a lot of things in my mind is uh, yeah. how to, how, why we do what we do and how to go about it. So you're up on this one as well. How to connect, engage, and inspire kids. 
Yeah, well, I did a a, a few. Oh, I'll do a, a lot of different sessions. I did a leadership session yesterday for a group of high school kids here, and we're talking about leadership. And we we talked about how do you influence other players in your team. So these are a group of about twenty boys at a boys high school, and they're the captains of the cricket team, captains of the rugby team, captain of the rowing team. They're all there, and my job is to talk to them about what leadership looks like. And look, it was overwhelming, Glenn, that their views on leadership were not to stand and yell instructions, not to do speeches before. It was connecting with human beings. And one of them gave a wonderful example. And I know he won't watch this because he's a soccer player, but but he gave a wonderful example. of. So we start off with guys, we call it leadership lessons. Said anyone got a leadership lesson for us this week? So we, I, I facilitate, but I let the boys basically drive the session. And he said, yeah, he said there was uh, the other day, he said we were uh, at a critical point in a game. He said there was someone stepping up to have a free kick. And he said, I just went up to him and I said, you can do this, man. And he smiled and he, he scored. And I said, so what, what was the lesson? And he said, he said all he needed was someone to tell him that they believed in him at a critical moment. And I thought, I said, mate, you could, that, there's a textbook in what you've just done what you've done is extraordinary as a young leader to realize that that's what we do. And I think for, for applying it to the coaching context is coaches, we've got to get better at this. The days of standing at the end and, and yelling, okay, 24, 100s on 140, go, that's gone. It, it's over. That right. the business we're in is building relationships, understanding motivation, creating the opportunity for kids to express who they are, to listen to them, to empower them. That's the world that they live in, that they expect. It's not got anything to do with them being soft or practice being easy. If anything, practice is more challenging and more demanding than ever because they're taking ownership of making it everything that they want it to be. It's, But we've got to change, we've got to adapt, and we've got to evolve to be able to do that. It's no longer st- what we call the sage on a stage, standing there and delivering right. information. It's about connecting, engaging, and inspiring kids to want to be there and to do things to the best of their ability. I think along these lines that we have to also, um, especially depending on the age of the kids, um, it, the, the way I like to say it is there, there can be no pride. And, and what I mean by that is that Whatever you have to do to get that kid to smile and engage, whether you have to make yourself look a little bit ridiculous, um, you know, um, make mistakes, point out that you make mistakes, point out that you're fallible. um, It tends to bring them in a little bit more in comparison to, like you said, Sage on the stage, where you come across as this domineering sort of uh, do it because I say so. Um, if there's a little bit more of a partnership, then I think you're going to engage the kids a little bit better as well. Um, so that's just my way of doing it. It's just kind of being silly and funny and, uh, and not worrying about what, what anybody else thinks. If, but you know how we say, you know, how we say you and I are really, um, professional at what we do. I just noticed my computer's about to run out of power. So while you continue to talk, I'm just going to plug it back in. And I'll move on to the next one. Okay. So, um, so empowering swimmers to take ownership 
as as Wayne reboots his computer. I don't think he's rebooting it. He's just plugging it in. Um, but my take on this, ownership is the biggest part in, I think, in swimming and probably all athletics is is making the athlete understand that they are responsible for their their sport. Uh, and, and I say that to kids all the time when they're here for lessons or when I'm talking to them at a team that um, we as coaches, we will have numerous athletes. Um, we're going to have so many swimmers that come through um, year after year. There's some new people. And what I get across to the kids or the goal to get across to the kids is that they have one chance at this. They have one shot at this career. Uh, and, and then soon they'll be on to the next phase of their life. And so if they, if, if they take ownership of that and they don't depend on, it's not going to be how great your coach is. It's not going to be the sets. It's not going to be, you know, your friends, it's going to be you. And so giving them the reality of the situation that they are responsible for their success, um, I think is just a very, it's an honest message. And it's one that I think we as coaches have to have to present them with. Yeah, true. And I, the other night I was, uh, I've been busy this week. I've done media and a whole range of things, but the other night I did a, a session with a local high school with their parents and their kids. And I said uh, there was a physiotherapist on before me and a strength coach. And then I came out and I said to the parents, you know, I said, I've been in this for a long time, work with a lot of different people. I believe two things. One is I'm about to give you the secret to success. I guarantee if you listen and you follow this, you and your child will be all they could ever dreamed possible. I also believe that none of you will listen. And they all laughed. And I said, and I'll tell you what I said, I'll tell you what I've learned in 30 years of being in this business. And I, I tell a story about homework. I say, okay, if I said, by 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, I want all of you to come to school with an assignment completed on the history of Australia. And I don't tell you anything else. I know that a lot of you will come in, hand in one page late, handwritten, without your name on the top, with a bite from the dog in the corner. And you've done what I asked you to do. And I'm going to give you a C grade. A lot of you will hand in two pages, nicely typed up, put it on my desk, name at the top. You've also done what I asked you to do. I'm going to give you a B grade. One of you in this room is going to go, wow, an assignment on Australia. How cool. You're going to go online. You're going to download a map of Australia. You're going to download the Australian flag. You're going to do six pages. You're going to have it referenced and you're going to hand it in in a nice folder early. You also did what I asked you to do and you're going to get an A. And the parents look at me, I said, and that's the secret to success. That's it. There is that we teach choice and we teach empowerment and we teach that it's not me as teacher and it's not the task that I've given them. It's how they choose to engage with it and how they choose to complete it. And I said, every athlete, uh, I was in Manchester United in 2019 and we're talking about when Ronaldo, the great, great Ronaldo was there the first time. And talking to some people who knew him then, and I said, what was special about him? said he'd finish practice, and he'd go over the back by himself with a huge bag of soccer balls 
and just practice striking goals. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, great. Friend of mine, another guy I work with in rugby, he set himself a goal, a target of a 93% success rate in kicking goals. Practice would finish. He'd go over by himself at the end of practice and, and have 50 kicks at goal. And over and over, we hear the story of Phelps. Sunday mornings, Bob's told this story yeah. how many times? He'd go to practice, do 10 Ks of swimming by himself. Why? Head start on the rest of the competition. Over yeah. and over. We see the example is that when athletes take ownership and responsibility for their own destiny, they become unstoppable. While we're still pushing and driving and prodding and yelling, it doesn't happen. And, oh man, it's what is that? The secret to success is hard work. That's why it remains a secret to so many. Uh, it's, it's just <laughs> right in front of you that, that how many examples have we heard from Jordan and, and, it's, mm. it's there, Glenn. And yeah. anyone who says to me, oh, I don't really know how to make athletes successful. I say, yes, you do. Inspire them to take ownership and responsibility for their own destiny. Once they get that, there's nothing they can't do. They become unstoppable. But while you're still screaming and yelling times and heart rates, it's not going to happen. Right. So some of the assumptions that there are out there, we're going to go through a few of them. Um, so warm up, we talked about warm down for that, that young swimmer that I had this week. Uh, so warm ups in age group meets and, um, you know, for the young swimmers, how, how long should they be? I, I mean, you know, especially you go to some of these meets that you'll warm up and then you don't want to swim for another hour. Yeah, because there's yeah, well, too many kids around. Well, I think the 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 point of of these is around us challenging assumptions. So, you know, I'm talking to a, a friend of mine who's a strength and conditioning coach in rugby league, and he asked me. He said, "Why do you guys do so much warm up?" He said, "You're you've got eight, nine, ten year old kids, eleven, twelve year old kids. They don't ever pull muscles. They don't ever have soft tissue injuries. They they're in body weight uh, supported mm -hmm. environment. They're in warm water." He said, what do you guys spend 20% of your time warming up? Just, just do it. Just get into it. Yeah. And the only answer I could give him was, well, that's the way that we always do it in swimming. And I went, Wayne, what are you saying? So we do it because we've always done it, even though someone coming in looking with a PhD in his area of expertise, he looked at it and said, uh, he said, don't make any sense to me. He said, we've got adult footballers, 120 kilos, Big guys, huge injury risk, lots of soft tissue, pounding into the ground. I get that. I, I understand why we do it. Why you, Why do you guys do it? Why don't you just get straight into it? So when you're looking at where do we go as a sport, we'll start to challenge the things that we've, we've just believed to be true and accepted them uh, without challenge, with just complete, well, that's the way it's done here. Let's just keep doing it. There's a lot of sprinters that don't really do a whole lot of warm-up. I mean, they're ready to go, and so they do some land activation exercises and um, and and then just get in and go for it. So that certainly is, is um, you know, very interesting, especially from the young kid's standpoint. Um, one of the, one of the other ones, uh, that you wrote down, which I love is why do we, why do we only do like the length of the pool, like all sets add up to the length of the pool. Um, and you know, so 25s, 50s, 100s, 200s, 
you know, it's all this, this equal math. Um, on the Zoom meeting on Tuesday, there was a coach from Texas that talked about how they're working their underwaters. And it's basically like a, like a, a race. They start them at different, different ends of the pool and whoever gets to the 12 and a half first, uh, they basically shut it down there. But you got these two kids coming at each other, trying to get to the, the middle of the pool, the fastest. And then, you know, then it's just like, you just shut it down and it's nice and easy. So I like that because there was, there was this mid target. And so there was this, uh, this spot that he turned it into an engaging, fun, yes. active, competitive, uh, and, and this kind of vague sort of, not the 12 and a half yards in the 25 meter or 25 yard pool is vague, but it's like, it's not normal. Um, and so I thought that was just one example that I just heard the other day that says, okay, we're not doing the regular stuff. You got to blast this thing. And I, and I loved it. I do, I do a thing in clinics where I get somebody in the middle of the pool, doesn't matter if it's long course, 50, short course, I get someone to stand at the midpoint with a kickboard on its side, so up in, and both two other swimmers have got their hand on the kickboard and they go that way to the end of the pool and race back. Breaststrokers and butterflies can see each other as they're racing back to the kickboard in the middle of the pool. They never get that opportunity, freestylers do, but they never get a chance to actually see something to engage them in a race. And they love it, and you can't get them to stop. So what do you get? You get competitiveness. You get intense speed. You get rapid turns because so much is at stake. They race back. One of them takes the kickboard. The other two sprint. And often, why why don't we do that stuff? Why does it have to be end-to-end? full lengths all the time. There's so many variables that they can race to ropes. They can race to boards. They can race to 60 meters. And, and there's so many options, but the assumption is always full lengths, tens, twenties, 30 reps. It's people are mesmerized by the simplicity of the math, but the human body doesn't care. The human body doesn't care whether it's 30 meters and stop in the middle of the pool it, it doesn't have to be full length. So coaches challenge that stuff. And I think the other thing also is that there's not necessarily a, a definitive time. So this can be about feel. This can be about attack. This can be about um, everything else without having that, um, that judgment on it every time you come into the wall. Yeah. Whereas once yes. you, once you have that, that, um, that measure then you will have a judgment which which a kid every time they come in and this is uh this is our our biggest problem i think in dealing with young swimmers is that they want to go lifetime best time every time they jump in the pool and i think the expectations are just way too great because we've put you've you've got to improve you've got to improve look there's going to be a time you don't improve anymore and if that's the only measure of success then every time the kid comes into the wall they're going to be judging why didn't I go faster on this? So doing some of the mid pool, doing some of the, the really kind of weird sort of made up things, um, you know, actually can get them to think more about swimming than just about how yeah. fast did I go? So uh, next one, why, why do we separate drills from sets? Yeah, this was an idea that uh, 
I used to call them linking drills. It was something uh, Ralph Richards, Sweetham and I wrote about a long time ago, but I was working for triathlon Australia and we brought out an athletics coach and he very smart guy. And I wish I could remember his name right now, but uh, American guy really just enjoyed his company a lot because he, they do their warm up, and he was doing speed and technique development work for the triathletes on the, on the track. And he would do some running drills and then they'd go into a set of 400s. But what he would do is if they were doing, say, just a really basic high knee drill, learning how to, to run with their knees coming up, they might do six, eight, 10 reps, 20 meters long of that drill. But then what he would do is that for the first 20 meters of all the 400 meter repeats would be that drill. Because he said, he said, doesn't make sense. He said, what we do is we have this precise way of doing drills. We're giving them feedback. They're thinking about technique. And then we say, main set, 10 400s, off you go. So again, this is track. And he said, what he does, he said, I need to make sure there's a connection between what they've learned and what they feel and then what they practice. So it was fascinating, Glenn, that, that he'd have 400 meters, obviously, but he had a marker 20 meters, 30 meters back where they started each 400 meter rep with a high knee drill to continually reinforce the transition between what they learned to improve their technique and the execution of that skill at speed and under fatigue. And it forced me to come back and say, well, again, we work in segments, but the body doesn't work like that. It's not warm up, tick, kick, tick, pull, kick, drills, tick, main set, it's an integration, a blending, and in the end, we want them to maintain skills that they've learned through drills and other routines into everything they do. So, you know, I, I say to coaches, if even if you're doing a long set, you're doing 30 100s, why can't you start every fourth 100 with 15 metres of drill? Why can't you have a middle 25 of, of every six 100 as drill so that there's this constant stimulation and reinforcement of... Mm-hmm. It's not just what I do, it's how I do it that's going to make me a better athlete. So and, and I, there's no reason we, why we can't do that stuff. And I think even to the point where, you know, again, there's a lot of drills on Go Swim. I mean, over the last 20-some years, I've, I've filmed a lot of drills. And um, But what if you don't do any drills? What if the drill is a focus? What if the drill is slow swimming thinking about how your hands are engaged with the water Uh, how about you know you can walk you can walk down the entire body your hands forearm elbows bicep lats you could you could have a length focused on just that one piece how does this interact how does this engage to the point what would be more effective you know because when we give drills to athletes the question is, do they do them the way the drill is meant to be done? And and I don't know if I've said it on here, but almost everybody that I have come for a lesson, especially if they're a competitive swimmer, I want them to do front skull for me. I want them to see, I want to see, this is a standard typical drill, front skull, and every team does it. And so I want to see how they do it. And I'd say 90% of the athletes that come here do it incorrectly. And, you know, by the hands are just pushing back and forth side, 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 side. And so to get them to do it correctly, 
I mean, if you're not doing the drill correctly, don't do it. Yep. And if you don't know what the point of the drill is, don't do it. It's better to have them swim slow with thought and you have to inspire them to think. They will think that slow swimming is the easy part of practice. No. And I used to tell my athletes, they used to ask me, is today hard? I said, it's always hard. I said, if your heart's not beating, your brain's thinking. <laughs> so there's no easy lap. There's no easy lap because you're you're imprinting, you're engaging with the water on all laps. And so you better be thinking how, how it's impacting you. So, um, yeah, so I've been thinking more and more about that for, for young swimmers. Um, I, love, I love this one that you wrote. Um, so it's basically you, you got these long sets that you're doing. The strokes fall to junk, but the heart rate is still there. So you're hitting your heart rate zones. Um, but what are you, what are you practicing? That's what I don't get. I don't know what, is it a competition to see who can keep their heart rate the highest, the longest? Yes. Have you, um, there's a new event in the Olympics next year in Paris. It's the 400 meter heart rate and whoever (laughs) maintains their heart rate the highest throughout the race gets the gold medal. Wow. I'm pretty impressed. I'm making a comeback then. I'm making a comeback. (laughs) All I got to do is hold my breath and run. Look, I, I can't emphasize this enough to coaches. The the emphasis on heart rate is 1970s, 1980s thinking. Even the best sports science minds, the best swimming physiologists I know, don't place heart rate with the level of importance that we used to because we've learned a lot. What we do now with heart rate, heart rate is a secondary measure. The primary measure is speed. That's, you know, what's the Mm. pace? And then what is heart rate as a consequence of that speed, not the other way around? If you're still using heart rate as the the primary determinant of your workout, you you need to have a rethink and need to go and have a look at some other research. But, you know, I often say to coaches, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve good technique at high speed, under fatigue and under pressure, in competition situations. That's what we're trying. That's what swimming, competitive swimming, that's my definition. Swimming fast with great technique and great skills under fatigue and pressure in competition settings. All right, what's that got to do with heart rate? How does any of that, how does having a heart rate in a particular zone link to that? All heart rate does is it's a a broad-based basic physiological measurement. If the outcome is, can they do this when and where it matters with good technique and skills in competition settings, why base your workout on heart rate? It's important. We use it in recovery. We use it during swim down to see how well they recover. It's there somewhere. It's another tool. But move on. Really move on. It's not about heart rate. It really isn't. We all got excited about it. We all lived heart rate monitors, 70s, 80s, 90s. Those days are gone. It's a lot more precise, much more deliberate. And what is heart rate as a consequence of these other things that are way more important? Very challenging for a lot of coaches out there to even listen to that without getting excited. But guys, I promise you, the importance of heart rate with senior teams is less and less than it ever was. It's other things now. I use heart rate in the backyard frequently simply because I can control certain uh, parameters. Okay. 
So if I can have a water speed at a set speed and then vary the tempo and vary the technique of that athlete, can they go the same speed at a lower heart rate? Yeah. And so it's an indicator, like you said, it's an indicator of, uh, of it's, it's not the first indicator. It's, it's a secondary, like you said, but it is, it can be useful, but it's not how high can you, you know, keeping in this zone. I just use it to see, are we saving energy? And then if we're saving energy and if you're a triathlete and you don't need to save that energy because you're going to hold your heart rate at 150, 160 for two hours anyway. Okay. Let's see how fast we can go. And, you know, so it is, it's so much about speed. Um, I always love this one. This sends me so far back that, you know, you'd go a two and a half hour long practice, long, long course with Denny or somebody like that. And then we do sprints at the end. Uh, and a sprint would be like the slowest sprint you would ever go because you were completely dead and nothing yeah. against how we trained, but that is 40 years ago. This is why you need to be creative and think differently. But looking at the overall context of our discussion, it's not 40 years ago, my friend. It is still yeah. happening in many, yeah. many programs around the world. And when you say to coach, if a coach says we do it because it reinforces the ability to swim fast when they're fatigued. All right. If that's, if that's what, if that's true, then I, what I'd be hearing you say is good technique, relaxed and smooth, count your strokes, manage your rating, great skills. Don't breathe last 15 meters on finish, all that stuff. If it's just get up and go, well, no, you're not developing speed. It's some, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some belief that we've had for a long time is we've got to toughen those little suckers up and, to me, nothing is tougher than saying to an athlete, I know you're tired, but we're going to hit exactly 22 strokes on this lap. We're going to maintain this speed, really controlled first 15, last 15. Nothing is harder than demanding precision under fatigue and pressure. Just yelling at them, it's not fast enough. That's not achieving very much at all. But again, this is the default and why I've included that in this list is I still see it all over the world that coaches will say, yeah, we do our speed work at the end. Well, hang on. They're fatigued. They're demotivated. Their nervous system is shot. They're dehydrated. Their glycogen uh, depleted. That's not the time to be trying to develop speed. All it does is, I don't know, give you some sense that you feel like you've done a workout, but it's certainly not developing great speed. And it's definitely not consistent with that model of, great technique, great skills at high speed, under fatigue, under pressure in competition. Yeah. And it's not true speed because you just can't do it. Just can't do it. So, and then our final one for today is why do sprinters do threshold sets? Oh, look, I got a typo. Hang on. And up until then, I thought you were probably the perfect human being. Look at, I am. We're going to cut that out. Oh, look at that. What it, now, this is always a controversial one that, that if you've got, if you've got a kid who's really good at math at school and they love math and they're doing great, why would you make them do history classes? If you've got a plumber who's really good with pipes, with water, with drains, with sinks, with showers, why would you get them to build your garage? Like, man, if people are good at something, and we know how to create an environment 
to make them even better at what they do. Why do we go, yeah, but they don't do threshold sets or we need to put an endurance base in them. There's a great, one of the best lines I've ever heard from a wonderful football coach, a soccer coach in the US called Anson Dorrance, who coached the girls team to, to great success for a long time. And he said, we don't know what to do with genius. He said, and he told the story about soccer. He said, so a girl walks in with limited training and can kick goals from anywhere who's just got this, this attacking, um, aggressive, this ability to, to see a goal and, and score capable of winning. What's the first thing we do? We teach you how to defend. He said, we, as coaches, we, we've got this fixed mindset of what a player should look like and what skills they should have. Instead of saying, oh my God, I've got a genius. I'll create an environment for them to express that genius because they're the ones that can help us win. And I see coaches all over the world, Glenn, they go, yep, this kid's really quick. This kid's got it. This kid's fast. Yeah, but they don't have a base. So what we're going to do is for the next 16 weeks, we're going to huge volumes of work. We're going to kill the speed off because the textbook says, and my coaching course said, that we've got to build mm-hmm. an endurance base. Well, again, guys, why, why? Just think for a minute. We don't create greatness by forcing people to do stuff they're terrible at. We create an environment which unleashes their potential. And, you know, I see it everywhere around the world, these kids with incredible sprint ability being forced to have a huge aerobic base for no particular reason other than that's the way we've always done it. Well, I had a conversation with one of my students this week that talked about, I, I was telling him, he's a, he's a distance, mid, mid-distance distance swimmer. And he was, the, the discussion was, why don't sprinters train? And I said, you know, I explained to him some of the hardest sets I ever did were like six 100s on three minutes, but they all had to be under a certain time. And it took me three hours to get six of them under because it was so hard to swim that fast. Um, that some people aren't made for that top speed sort of thing. Uh, but don't dare think that by going less yardage at the intensity that these people do is an easier path because if you don't know how to give 100% of everything that you mentioned, whether it's the the technique, the number of strokes, the breakout, all of these things and 100% put into this form, then you probably don't understand why sprinting is so hard. And that just because the distance doesn't add up to what your distance is in practice, don't think that they're getting off easy Um, because it is incredibly difficult to reach the top speeds in water. Um, And look, it's incredibly difficult to be the best at anything. I don't care what it is. And when you're looking to be the best at something, it's incredibly difficult. But people still have that generalization that you only work hard if you're doing the yardage. And I think that's just total BS. Yeah. Total BS. It's it's it, how it's you do the yardage precision. always. It's yeah. precision, and yeah. you know, I I asked the I asked the thing on Facebook a few years ago. I said, "What's the toughest set you've ever done?" And of course, you got the you know twelve four hundred IMs on uh, seven minutes, and you know which was all related to distance. And I get it. Yeah. But, but a, a former great swimmer said, he said, "I had to do six one hundreds." and hit a particular target and it took as long as it took. And he said it was basically within about a second and a half of my best time. 
and yep. it was an uncompromising set where the standard could not be adjusted good near enough wasn't good enough he said that was the yep. toughest because they were on about a 10 minute turnover um yep. and figuring out how to get a level of precision under fatigue and under real pressure he said that's the toughest set i've ever done i said i think that's more like what i i think is is what i would call tough because um you know i've i've I ran into vladimir salnikov years ago and i he was telling me oh, i used to do 20k workouts just straight 20k swimming uh, distance and volume isn't isn't necessarily tough once you get to a certain level it's precision yeah. and deliberate swimming in competition settings consistently that's that's the hardest thing to do and that's where i think the real greatness starts to come out yeah well we totally failed on our <laughs> i noticed <laughs> not even close not even close <laughs> we we're we're trying to keep this under an hour and so we made a conscious effort today to talk about it we're at an hour and 13 minutes now so if you're still with us uh thank you 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 have you've just done your threshold set for the uh for the week um now we're we have a a, a special uh, podcast coming up uh hopefully within the next week um and i know we're both really looking forward to it but um wayne great job again as always thank you so much and um everybody we'll see you soon remember may the fourth be with you look at that i you know and you're always taller than me in these i gotta figure out how to sit so that i'm yeah i don't know anyway i've got a very very big chair <laughs> there you go have a great week everybody bye